0: Hey, everybody. All right. So, you know, we're doing this thing. We're at the start of every episode. We're giving a moment of gratitude. Well, today's gratitude comes from a review that just, oh my heavens, it was just posted. So, Lost Vegas 533 posted this on Friday. Her quick review was gives the knowledge to confidently switch. So hi, Michelle and Erin. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your joy and information with SLPs all over the world. In the last year, I switched from skilled nursing to EI. And with the help of your podcast and resources, I felt confident in my transition. It's because of you I know of neurodiversity affirming care, as this was not even discussed when I was in grad school. It's because of you I have eight kids on my caseload who are getting AAC device trials or are ready to receive their own Because you educated us on the companies and resources available to us. You both have touched the lives of thousands of clients you've never met by creating this platform. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart. So, from the bottom of Aaron and I's heart, Las Vegas 533. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this journey that is First Bite. And thank you for your words of affirmation because, you know, we never really know. We pour our hearts into it, but we don't know if it's helping so hearing that it's helping got my irish eyes leaking so las vegas 533 you rock thank you
1: hi folks and welcome to first bite fed fun and functional So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, everybody. So
0: I don't know about y'all, but 2023 has kind of kicked our booties from the beginning of this year. Erin, is that a fair understatement?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: So like we legit attempted to reschedule the live recording
2: for this like three times already. The first one was my fault though, which is rare. No offense, Michelle, it's usually (laughs) your fault.
0: (laughs) That's because my life is the flaming gorgeous dumpster fire that it is on most days. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Anywho, we made this as a pre-recorded one. So if you signed up for the live one with our whole hearts, we apologize for the delay, but here we are. We survived. Okay. So on that note, this is a recap of ASHA and trust me, we get it. It costs all of the monies to attend an ASHA convention. So what we wanted to do was share our favorite takeaways from ASHA with y'all, but do so respectfully of, you know, the courses and the topics that we went to. Because again, you gotta get your first hand source of the information. So there is also that. Okay. On that note, I have to set the stage for what actually went down at Asha because Asha twenty twenty two for Pack Dawson is gonna go down in the record books. Saturday morning at the end of Asha, I was supposed to go to like one more lecture on Saturday morning. And like Aaron booked what was the god awful time of your flight like?
2: Like five thirty, but I'm didn't have those flights are cheaper. So that's what that was. Yeah. So
0: Air's gotten out the hotel room and I'm sitting there and I'm like, am I going to go? Does my brain have the capacity to do one more? So then my husband calls and there is wailing, gnashing of teeth. I forgot pizza. about this. Oh my God. Everybody had lost their freaking marbles. And he goes, so uh, I know you're at Asha, but like I really – Is there any way you could fly home early? And I'm like, holy cats, somebody has died. Like something horrific has happened. No. So what happened was that morning, Bear went to wake up Hammy and Sir Dr. Bubblebutt to feed them. And he noticed that Hammy wasn't scampering away. They're hamsters, folks. Hammy wasn't scampering away with the speed with which he normally does. So he picked Hammy up and his face fell off. O-F-F. It was gone. <laughs> so he walks down the hallway with Amy in his hand, to which Goose came around the corner and goes, oh my God, I can see his bones. And then Bear panicked and dropped him. My husband came running up the stairs, and I'm going to do like the play-by-play narration after the fact. And my husband was like, I'm gonna step outside and finish telling you the rest of the story. So please know that while Christian is conveying the story to me, Hammy was getting a traditional burial in the family fire pit <laughs> up front. So he was, he was cremated because we're worried Doc and Chewie would bury, unbury him and eat him. <laughs> so, like life. Anywho, it turned out it was hamster side. Sir Dr. Bubblebutt ate his brother's face off but the children don't know the full story. Um no, they so- don't know
2: that because I accidentally almost <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so- that
2: story. and bear goes, no, that's not what happened. No. My his husband- brother didn't eat him. I- oh my God. When I said, oh oops. Well,
0: yeah. No. So my husband told the boys that Hammy flew off the hamster wheel and just sliced his face off because of the hamster wheel. And
2: so, very traumatic, (laughs) which
0: is very traumatic. So, once I got bear calmed down enough, because he was like hyperventilating, he was like, My heart needs a hammy the hamster ornament to go next to my baby ornament for Christmas so I can carry him always. So, thank you, Amazon. It got home before I got home because we like live right next door to like the Amazon delivery plant here in Columbia. So we survived. So, Asha, twenty twenty two is going to go down as the year Sir Doctor Bubblebutt ate Hammy's face off, and we lied to our children and well, made it an amends with for their, their own good for their own good. <laughs> but like, Aaron. What was your favorite point of, or biggest memory of Asha 2022? Honestly,
2: I don't even remember. (laughs) What did we do? We did so many things. I don't know, but everybody coming up
0: and saying hi at the booth was phenomenal. Your sweet, kind words were just cup runneth over. I mean, we sit here... How many times a month just talking into a microphone and staring at each other on the camera going, I hope that this is impactful. We hope that we're filling the void with joy and evidence. Yep.
2: Michelle, being in the biggest room in the whole place was pretty great. There were a lot of people in there, but it was that place was huge. Michelle having a panic attack and running back and forth to the bathroom three
0: times to have the nervous speaker poos before she started. And people,
2: no, people stopping you before you could even get to the podium. Like you were literally just walked in the door and there was already a line before you even started talking. And I was like, you can ask her questions later. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I love how you know how nervous I am and I'm shaking like a leaf. And yeah, <sighs> I think I should just pack anti-anxiety medications for next year. But like we're going to be fine. But It was great, y'all. We loved it, with the exception of Hammy. May he rest in hamster peace, but it's fine. We're good. So on that note, new changes for 2023.
2: Aaron has moved, which is very exciting, hence the new- Except the snowstorm this morning. (laughs) There's like three inches of snow outside, and I'm home alone in my aunt and uncle's house, and- Honestly, I've never shoveled a driveway before because my stepdad and dad always did it for me. So I'm kind of hoping the neighbor's doing it right now. I heard the garage door open. So bring him a nice bottle as a thank you gift. Well, my car is not in the driveway because the driveway is at like a 45 degree angle. So I was very anxious that I was going to slide down the hill. So it's around the corner, I hope still. And there's a big football game today, so I have to go watch the Bills play the Bengals, which is, is exciting. I hope I don't get beat up.
1: And
2: <laughs> yeah, now I'm working at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So I'm oh just getting acquainted with all the things. It's a lot bigger. There's a lot more people. There's a lot more things. So, Oh my God. Y'all, she called me. She was like, Michelle, there's
0: so many specialty clinics. I'm in heaven. Oh my God, there's this and there's this and we have this. And she starts prattling it all off. And I'm like, her little nerd heart is in like, is living its best life. So, and Pac Dawson is still moving. So, yay. <laughs> and like- just moving forward. No fears, no worries there. Okay. So anywho, on that note, let's commence with folks. Every year, we're going to set the stage here. Full disclosure, I volunteered to serve on the PFD planning committee for ASHA 2022. And for ASHA 2023, I am the topic chair for the pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders committee. So I do feel compelled to like give those disclosure statements right out the gate, but In case you didn't know it, every year, ASHA has an app that you can download prior to attending a convention. This helps you streamline and select which courses you want to go to. This helps you keep track of like CEUs. Last year, you couldn't submit CEUs through the app. I, I keep hoping that one day that will come to fruition, but right now it's not there. But It does allow you to plug in and absorb what it is that in a more, no pun intended, digestible fashion, because otherwise it can be a little overwhelming. And the first two learning objectives for today were legit based off of one of the courses that we went to that we had personally helped solicit to see come to fruition. It was all about, it was Cara Fletcher from Boston and Jennifer Castile from Arizona. And it was myth busting. And they, in an hour, touched on the topics that everybody is afraid to go there with, right? They touched on non-speech oral motor exercises and how they are not evidence-based for the evaluation and treatment of pediatric feeding disorder. And then went down through tethered oral tissue issues and where the literature stands there. So with my whole heart, I have to express my gratitude for them actually coming and being brave enough to stand up and have that conversation. It was Cara Fletcher Larson. I'm so sorry. It was Reframing Your Practice Critical Analysis of PFD Treatments, was the title of the article. And this was a biggie. And my overarching takeaway from their presentation was how quickly we as a profession, head the route of inefficient resources for the source of our evidence. Okay. So we see somebody engage in a therapeutic practice, or maybe we turn to social media and we see a video or a reel or God help us a tick of the talk, And people think that that is that snapshot moment is a reliable source of evidence for why we should be doing it without actually deep diving into the literature where they talk about how it's it's not
2: evidence based. Erin, what do you mean? Well, I also think and you and I were having this conversation yesterday, but I think the shift also and why maybe certain therapeutic techniques have been utilized so much more in the past and people are having a hard time shifting from them is because Those techniques are very much more direct service, you and the child working on, these are the tasks I'm doing. What makes it easier to step back from those is when you go into more of a coaching model, you go into more of working with the parent or the caregiver. Because feeding is so complex and has so many pieces to it, it's kind of irresponsible to just work on one thing and think that that's going to completely change the feeding experience. Granted, it's going to take longer and the progress may not be as immediate or you may not see it right away. But if you are having the conversations with caregivers and explaining to them everything you're looking at and explaining why you're doing what you're doing and how all of these things are connected, there's going to be more buy in. Because I think I have so many conversations with clinicians and I relate to this because it's both in feeding and both in like the type of language therapy that I do with play-based child-led floor time is that sometimes it doesn't look like you're doing anything, but you're doing so much. And you have to acknowledge and feel confident in your clinical skills and understanding to explain to a caregiver why you're doing what you're doing instead of going into, oh, well, when I make them chew on this tube with no food on it, it looks like this is something, this is like an exercise that they do in PT. The thing that you have to understand about what we do versus PT is PT they're big muscle groups that they're working on, so it is e- like those exercises are evidence based and valid. But so much of what we do and we're working on is coordination and reflexes and the training fine motor movements. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I don't mean to be, but you don't see a an OT who's working on writing have them like squeeze their finger a bunch of times. Like it's about the mode of writing.
0: You I'm sorry, when you do the activity. squeeze the
2: finger thing, that's what Bear
0: does after he picks a booger out of his nose. He's like, I have a booger. <laughs> so like, continue.
2: I apologize. Like, you know what I mean though? Because mm-hmm. that's like kind of mm-hmm. what we do sometimes. So, When you work with adults, it is different because that coordination and those muscle groups have been built. And a lot of times it is a strength thing with swallowing. So like, They're not doing it in isolation. With adults, we're doing it with like IOPI or we're
0: doing it with like expiratory muscle strength training. So there's an outside – it's a very different – with EMST, you're actually strengthening your diaphragm, which is another major muscle group. Okay. So – What I love that these two women did was they put together a handout that lists all of their preferred references for when they were formulating this. And they actually went through and did the systematic research. So with respect for feeding and swallowing, these were the articles. And I'm going to say these slowly. So that way, if you want to gather them, you can. The first one was Clark Canning et al. 2021, Oral Feeding for Infants and Children Receiving Nasal Continuous Positive Airway Pressure and High Flow Nasal Cannula. A Systematic Review. It came out in BMC Pediatrics. The next one, Chen Yang Chen Wang, 2021, Effect of Oral Motor Intervention on Oral Feeding in Preterm Infants. A Systematic Review and Meta Analysis, American Journal of Speech Language Pathology. The next one, Goza, Cardin, Jax, Thread Gills. Silvetsky, excuse me, 2017, Evidence to Support Treatment Options for Children with Swallowing and Feeding Disorders, a Systematic Review, Journal of Pediatric Rehabilitation Medicine, Interdisciplinary Approach. Three more, Morgan Doddrel Ward, 2012, Interventions for Oral Pharyngeal Dysphagia in Children with Neurological Impairment, Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, Issue 10. Morgan C. et al., 2021, Early Intervention for Children Aged 0 to 2 with or at High Risk of CP, International Clinical Practice Guidelines Based on Systematic Reviews, Journal of American Medical Association of Pediatrics. And the last one, Shortland Hewitt, Orofacial, came out in 2021, Orofacial Myofunctional Therapy and Myofunctional Device Used in Speech-Language Pathology, a Systematic Quantitative Review of Literature from the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology. Y'all. Yeah. These are current, well-written, highly reputable authors that they pulled this research from. They're also
2: all systematic reviews or meta-analyses, which means they're taking reviews of a bunch of research, which is going to be higher level of evidence, which if you're going to be looking at research articles, you need to understand the levels of evidence based on what you're reading, whereas like a case study is going to be the lowest level of evidence. And- systematic meta-analysis are going to be higher level because they're taking a bunch of research and putting it together to understand where the consensus kind of lies in that area. And yes, there's going to be, if you want to find research to support what you're doing, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But what I learned, especially like being involved in a lab in graduate school is like, Research takes a very long time. And sometimes you do a whole research study and it doesn't show anything that you're looking for, but you have other data. And then you use certain, you see trends in other areas and may use that data, but there's so much just like, there's so much to a research article. And that's where Michelle and I, that's why we're a little more vocal about being careful with what you're consuming in regards to social media, because an article has taken so much time and that researcher has put years and years into this research article. And then someone is taking it and putting it in a tiny 30-second video and summarizing it, but they're summarizing it in their own words. So that's great. And I love that and they're not they're-
0: always giving full credit where credit is due.
2: Right. Which is but also- you also have to be careful because that's their own summary. And so, yeah, I love that it, it's getting more information out there, but make sure that you go back and read the article and you make sure that you are understanding based on your experience, what is being summarized there? or What is the results of that study? Because it's going to impact people differently. But the point of these articles is like they're taking a ton of research, putting it together and coming up with these conclusions of, is this evidence-based? Is this not evidence-based? Which I think was very helpful. And when (laughs) Jennifer (laughs) Kesto very blatantly said, there's no evidence that lip ties or cheek ties cause any difficulties with any feeding or speech at all. She's like, don't, none. Blanket statement, none. Lip, cheek ties or dimples? They're cute. I always wanted them. So maybe I wish I had bugle ties.
0: My sister has one, and then she's got a freckle on the other side, but her freckle is slightly unbalanced. And she's like, I just wish it was like down a little. And I'm like, it's slightly balanced. We're also
2: supposed to help so that food doesn't like go on the side of your mouth and you can't get it out, you know? Mm -hmm. So what do we do? This was their
0: thing. If you're watching colleagues engage in non-speech oral motor exercises, also this semester, we're only like how many weeks into the term. I've had so many students in my grad class say, well, I saw my external clinical supervisor engaging in non-speech motor exercises. I saw they wanted me to do this with the patients and that's what we did. And it looked like it worked. I, it looked like it worked. Okay. But what else is going on? Is that child also getting occupational therapy and physical therapy to strengthen core? Are they getting work done to address torticollis? Because it's, Most likely that you're engaging the whole system. In April, we have Kyler Romeo recommended them. We have a group of individuals coming on, Eileen and Charlene, with Perception Action Approach. It's a more child-led, sensory-integrated evolution of the NDT course. And embedded within that, they talk about how you have to build up from the core, and then that carries over to these finer muscle groups, right? So it may look like the non-speech oral motor exercises are working, but alas, it's everything else that's going on, okay? So what do we actually do? You can do environmental changes, and you can change the viscosity of the food that you're presenting. So if how you have, you're presenting it. Yes. The child feeds themselves. That's also kind of a biggie. Like as opposed to we have to re-engage that oral preparatory stage of the swallow. But if you have a child that's only taking pureed foods, presenting – I mean, say they're on like an ITZY level 3 or 4, presenting them an itsy level 6 or 7, they are probably not ready. You have to slowly increase the viscosity. This is – a half a degree of change. I have one little guy, we're literally doing one teaspoon of cereal added to his purees each week. So that way his body can adjust that works for this child, right? But it's like tapered weaning protocol, but in reverse. So instead of thinning, we're slowly thickening. That makes sense. That can be an excellent tool in your toolbox.
2: Well, and what I would also recommend, because a lot of the things that I have learned about the whole body in regards to feeding are from taking courses from OTs and PTs, because I am so grateful for the Purdue I Eat Lab and the research that they're doing, especially in regards to like rotary mastication and kids with CP and their overall, how it's more of a coordination than a strength issue. If you look at the research in regards to CP from the OT and PT world, you would already know that because that's how it is gross motor. And like I've learned so much about posture and how. (laughs) Like how she sits up when she says that. Because my posture is so bad. But I've taken like NDT courses and I'm also just learned from my OT colleagues about how we have a lot of kids that overstuff, but they overstuff not because of oral motor, it's because their posture is not well enough developed that they don't have the core support. And so some of them are overstuffing because they just want to be done because it's so hard for them to hold themselves up and have that posture. And how many of our kids that we work with, especially our kids with CP or other um, like genetic diagnoses that have um, significant motor impact are never in a good posture, which getting them in a better chair and better positioning can automatically help with that fine motor of their oral motor skills. And this is why I'm doing a lecture more in regards to language, but with an OT, because we have to step outside and learn from our colleagues and have understanding of what's going on overall in order to be the best speech feeding therapist that we can be. I'm not working on gross motor, but I'm learning from them to know what to look for, to know what to be aware of. I had a patient I was working with recently who we could not get past smooth purees. Like we could not do it. Down syndrome diagnosis, a lot of tongue protrusion, and a lot of like gulping and ha- like very audible swallows when you would do something thicker. And this was like a couple years, honestly. And there were some cardiac, we had cardiac surgery in the past. And I knew that their aorta was pushing up against their esophagus previously from their cardiac surgery. And I was like, something is going on. Something is going on. We had a barium swallow looking at their esophagus with thin liquids that showed mild dysmotility, which I was like, "Mm -hmm. if we have mild dysmotility with thins, which we don't have an issue with, are we going to have a higher level of dysmotility with something that's thicker? And eventually ENT said, I mean, I do see a constriction within the esophagus that's impacting oral motor. Who would have thought? But what I said to mom was, this is okay. Like we know we don't want to do more surgery right now. We want to let this child grow. But to have the knowledge of this being the why, I'm not going to spend so much time doing oral motor exercises or things to try and advance solids in a way that doesn't feel comfortable to this child because I know what the underlying issue is, which is another thing to think about with oral motor concerns is it can be so many other things. And so you have to have the knowledge of the medical and of the other systems to be able to truly do feeding in the safest, best way. And that's why we stress this. That's why Michelle wrote a book. That's why we talk about this all the time. That's why feeding is so involved and you have to have so much understanding because you have to know those things too. You can't just go in and look at oral motor in isolation. That's not safe. That's not healthy for the child or for yourself, for the child and so that's something important to think about. I highly, highly recommend taking courses from OTs and PTs because it will fully impact how you look at a child when you watch a child, how you see them walk, how you see them move their body, what strategies you implement to just give them more support from a regulation or a postural standpoint. Like you can you implement strategies in communication with them to see if they work or not to help if you have that knowledge and you've taken courses just to kind of supplement those things.
0: I had an OT, Irene, my mentor. She said, Michelle, if they can't cross their body, they can't cross midline with their arm, They can't which is a around. major muscle movement. How are we going to ask them to cross midline with their tongue? And she said it to me, but was in front of my student, so that it was like, because I was like, I know that. Why is she? And then I looked over and I was like, ah, you're deflecting at the extent so that way the student doesn't know you're politely calling the student out. I love that teaching tactic, right? But like, she's right. If we can't cross midline in a gross motor movement, we're again, missing prerequisite skills. So in the takeaways for the NSOMES stuff is predicated on a, the reason we don't do this is built on a bountiful variety of evidence. But at the end of the day, the way the brain works and the way the brain processes, if you teach mastication pattern in isolation without the utilization of a bolus, you have taught a muscle movement pattern in and of itself, and it will not carry over to an actual bolus that has to be consumed and digested because you haven't taught those muscle movements how to fully integrate with the deglutition, respiration, central pattern generators, because they're essentially just reflexes. Folks, they're reflexes. Let's not forget this. And if we don't engage that piece, then we are setting these little ones up for failure. And again, you don't need us to hash that out so much as help us I feel like our job is just to give you the resources so that you can consume them when you have time and or that's why we bring on great, brilliant minds like Dr. Melendracchi and
2: almost Dr. Arkenberg. And also, it's oral sensory motor because you cannot separate oral and sensory. Those are things that are like, if you look at the pathways of your brain and the different tracks, they are very, very much connected. And so... You also have to think about when you're working on oral motor is – because we do. We work on oral motor. Like we're talking about non-seasual oral motor exercises. I think the word, or, word oral motor then gets this negative connotation or yeah, it does. controversial it connotation. Mistakes. But oral motor are things that we're working on in feeding. Yeah. And you have to think about the sensation of certain foods. You have to look at their sensory system. And, or like And I think about a lot of autistic kids that we work with, especially because unfortunately – I feel like it's autistic kids who get the very behavioral chew on this a bunch of times when in reality, yeah. most of the time for these kids, it's not their oral motor, it's their sensory that's impacting why they're not wanting to eat this food. Also underlying GI allergies. Underlying treatment. GI issues for mm-hmm. sure. And those can be more subtle, which I think is hard, especially with certain GIs like They can be more subtle comparative to other kids that we have, but the impact of them can be so much greater because when your sensory system is more sensitive or you have, and this could be a whole lecture and and I talk about this a lot, but when you process language in chunks, which we know the majority of our autistic children do, you process memories in chunks as well. And so that's why the aversion becomes so strong with a lot of these children because they have really bad constipation or they throw up with one food and that whole entire experience of mealtime, whether it was a birthday or whatever, or there was cake there, there was, pe- that becomes the, all of that becomes negative because they don't know how to separate the memory. And that's just this entire negative experience. So that's why you also have to be really careful with those kids about shifting a preferred food because you don't want to take away something that they really like and then put a negative memory in it. And then it creates this whole cycle again. So with a lot of autistic children, you have to dive super deep into all their individual differences as opposed to just going straight to the let's do some exercises so you can chew this food better. Okay. My favorite quote ever, which I saw her okay, goose. Oh, she saw her arms. Her arms got really you got big. I got excited mm-hmm.
0: because I know this is buried in the book somewhere, but In 2013, because Goose was itty bitty, in 2013, Sherry Fraker came to South Carolina and I had her sign my book. And in that lecture, she stood at the front of the room and she said, food's not plastic and it doesn't vibrate. And I was literally the only woman that stood up in the back and started preaching because legit, that's like SLP gospel. And I teased her because she came on the podcast years and years and years ago and I was telling her that story. And I was like... I was like, honestly, I was like, Sherry, when the spirit moves you, you move. So like I jumped up and I was in the back. And like, that's when like we were so broke because Goose had just been born. And like, I had to like pump as soon as I got there. And I mean, he was born in November. So I mean, November to February. And like, I could only afford to go to her short course. And she was the only one I wanted to go to. But like, it was just this profound memory that like, she was the first person that I felt like gave me permission to think outside of the box because again we live in columbia south carolina where this is like the freaking epicenter of all things plastic that vibrate because
2: they're made here. Well, and if we're also going to talk about so we're going into all the things, I'm sorry. This is just like these are like these are big topics, but if you really want to think about memory and how children learn, the more meaningful the memory, the more they're going to learn that skill. And so if you bring in that meal time and that experience of food, it has more sensation because you have the flavor and the smell and you have the experience of eating the same food that everybody else is eating or maybe a little bit different. And so that part of your brain that activates, that holds that memory is going to be stronger in regards to that skill as well. Like that's why I talk about play because you you it has deeper meaning and they would call it in floor time, it's like putty stretching, like you're stretching the putty and you're bringing so much more meaning to that experience. And that's how that skill can like be more manif- like maintained within their brain, for lack of a better description. And so, but what do you do when? So my thought process is if you're the therapist
0: that absorbs all this information, if you're the therapist that sits back and says, okay, I'm here and I'm ready. I'm in the uncomfortable and I'm ready to move forward and stop doing speech-roll-motor exercises because please know I was the queen of NSOMS. Like I vibrated all the baby faces once upon a time. So like I am like a reformed. Well, and
2: also know that vibration can be helpful, but it, I'm not going go to
0: go a seizure, but no,
2: it's okay. <laughs> but it starts to lose the sensation eventually. Like you start to get used to the vibration because it's a different sensory receptor. And so if your goal is to get a child to feel food more, and then you keep vibrating their face and then put food there, they're probably going to feel it less, to be honest with you. So just know where that's coming from. But in order to know how vibration has impacts a different sensory receptor, you need to understand sensory. So unfortunately for everybody that we're talking to, what we're saying is take more courses, which I know people don't have the money for, but that are OT geared. There's there's people like, you know what I mean? Like it's just, no, I get it. There's a lot to it. Yeah. Yes. So while you're
0: growing through additional coursework, the catch is how do you have that conversation with
2: caregivers?
0: Because we're always
2: growing and learning and learning new things. Like we don't know so much, but we have to like, yeah.
0: Yeah. But like, you have to say like, Hey, I learned this new thing. And that's the way I phrased it. When I was going through it, I would say like with respect to this one thing, I would say, Hey, I know we've been doing this, but I took this course or I read this research article and I want to make a shift here or ask the caregivers, how do you really feel doing this to your child when I'm not here? How do you really feel about this? Do you feel like we're making progress? How seek to understand, or if you come in and this has happened to me a lot, I come in after a patient has had all of these procedures completed to them. And I phrase it like that because unfortunately a lot of times it is done to them, which takes away their bodily autonomy, which is a whole nother conversation. But I explained to the caregivers, this is my therapeutic approach. And I say that at the beginning. This is what I'm going to do. I use food as thy, thy medicine, right? So we're going to learn to eat by eating. But being able to hold the conversation with the caregiver to say, this is my therapeutic approach. These are my expectations. This is how I would like to coach you through, while also seeking how they want to be coached. But these are advanced level skill sets. You have to be willing to engage in adult education and recognizing that direct service delivery in and of itself is not current evidence-based practice, which is, I want to say that again and shout it from the mountaintops. When we're working in early intervention and we're working with pediatric feeding disorders, having a direct service delivery model is subpar care. Why? There are 168 hours in a week, and we give them 30 minutes or one hour. If we take that child away from their caregiver and do therapy to that child and then bring the child back to the caregiver, and in that 30-second handoff or those two-minute handoff, just word vomit at the caregiver what they did and then wish them luck and send them out the door, that is subpar care. I had a student come to me and say, well, this is what they were doing, but they expressed it. It was so that they could better manage the child's behaviors. Okay. They're in a different environment outside of their natural environment without their team, without their caregivers. And what's happening, they may not be able to decline because they don't have autonomy. You have the perfect storm for quote unquote behaviors. However if we look at the early intervention literature, if we look at the caregiver coaching model, if we look at and take trainings on how to hold conversations, and as Aaron always says, read the room, we'll realize that also all the feeding matter stuff, just go to feeding matter. There's the power of two where it's all caregiver focused and centered. If we instead spend that time empowering the caregiver on how to advocate for interprofessional practice with the different disciplines, how to advocate for reaching out to allied medical health, how to educate and empower that caregiver, how to read their child's hunger cues or their distress signals. If we put our energies there, we're setting this child up for success. End of story.
2: Behavior is information. So be a, Like you said, be a behavior detective. I would expect more behaviors in a new setting. And I sometimes am more concerned with kids that don't have any behaviors because that tells me that they are very much like maybe in a fond state and maybe just like have had so many things done to them that they kind of have just lost feeling of having control over their body at all. And a lot of the really medically complex kids that I work with, some of the first things I work with is giving them some sort of body autonomy. I remember one kid I was working with who had some pretty devastating brain damage because of something, and for 30 minutes of the session, the child would sit in their tumble form chair, and they would put their feet up. They loved to, the vestibular input, and I would put my hands up and work on showing them how they could push their feet off of my hands to control where their body was going. We would do that over and over and over and over again. So they felt like they had some sense of control. How many of our kids that we work with that are in a wheelchair all the time, do we then just go in and do more things to them because and then they have no
0: control? And the amount of language you can put in that when you're doing that again and happy and like it is that opportunity right there then sets the stage for so much language cognitive growth.
2: And when they also, the thing you have to realize, and if you come to Skisha or you're going to Pisha in Pennsylvania, you can hear Karen and I talk more about this and in certain capacities, but if you think about it, so many kids learn through them initiating experiences in the world, and so then if you teach them that they have control over their body, they're going to feel more sense of control over other things to be able to even just like reach out towards the food and put it in their mouth or do like, that's going to give them more of that control. But to Michelle's point about working with caregivers, the week that I had to leave all my families to move was like, I was just a blubbering mess the whole week. There you were. I and love the you. Families, my heart hurt for you. <laughs> and the families that I had the hardest time leaving, but also felt the most confident in leaving were the families that I had grown the best relationship with the caregiver because I knew that that caregiver knew how to advocate. I had empowered them. They knew like that child and that family was going to be fine, but we built such a strong relationship because it was problem solving. And they felt like they had more control over the plan of care, which I try to do with all of my families, but it, you don't always, you know, you have different relationships with every family. And there were some kids some of my autistic kids that I saw in the clinic that it was just more appropriate for them to come in and work with me individually. But it should be that constant collaboration and conversation. And and from the beginning, I'll say like, I'm a tool in your toolbox. We are a part of a team, and I'm going to be honest with you. I take courses. I like – Research changes, so there may be things that we start doing that down the road, like if I learn something new or I'm always growing, so I want us to grow together and just being very transparent about that because you're never going to have all the answers. And I think also once you get over that fear of not being perfect and once once you get fired like one time, you're like, From, okay, from a well, patient's like, house. She's Yes, but yes. like <laughs> Oh, sorry, not from a job, but from a patient. And by that, I mean just sometimes that you – And you usually know when it's not a good fit, but sometimes it has to be the family's decision. And so sometimes they're not either ready to hear what you have to say, or they really have just decided they want to use a different therapeutic technique, and that's their right, that's their child, that's their family, but... Once you get past the fear of like not knowing everything and not having to be perfect, it makes it easier to be transparent about that. And and it feels more authentic to families because they're like, you know what? I trust that you're going to try to do better. I trust that you're not just going to tell me something just to tell me it or act like you're doing something that you're doing. And I think that puts families at ease a lot because – it takes away that wall that they may have with other providers where it's like, I'm just getting the answer. And when you can be more transparent about it and pull back the curtain a little bit and make them feel more a part of what's going on, it builds trust.
0: That case in point that happened to me about two weeks ago, I had a child on my caseload who was non-speaking coming up on two years of age. And I'd pulled in an AAC device and we were modeling and the kid was thriving on this. We were waiting on their device to actually be delivered so that they could be- initiate their long-term loans. And this nagging suspicion that we were missing something and I was there. And sometimes the child would just drift away, but always came right back. But it was just odd, but I couldn't tell if it was a STEM but it just didn't feel right. And I witnessed what I thought was a pretty extensive focal seizure where the child came out of it and went directly into Moro reflex, threw his arms out and started crying, seeking his mom. And to me, that was a change in affect post what looked like a pretty, I, I counted, I mean, it was a couple seconds. I reached out called the pediatrician. Pediatrician was in total agreement with the concern, made a quick referral to neuro and the family was upset and declined to have me come back because they thought that I thought something was wrong with their child. But I mean, I had documented everything. And if I'm not the right person, then I'm not the right person, but I'm always going to advocate when, especially if I'm concerned.
2: Really- well, we have a code of ethics yes. that we also have to abide by. And a by.
0: license. But I mean, but here's the deal. We spoke healing into the universe. I adhered to what is best practice. And if I was totally imagining it, the pediatrician would not have made a referral, right? Like this is also like this is corroborated, but... We have diverted so far away. All right. I'm going to take it back. I think we covered non-speech normal motor exercises and the principles of motor And learning. I
2: think like motor learning yeah. too. We we got into yes. that. Yes. And we talked
0: about the caregiver coaching, which was the predicating factor. Now, they also gave some really good resources on this, and I'm just going to rattle these off really quick. Brown and Rodiger and McDaniel, 2014, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, Headley, 2017, We Need to Talk How to Make Conversations That Matter, Heath, 2020 Upstream, How to Solve Problems Before They Happen. Mm I bought that book because of them. And Grant 2021, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Those are just great texts. Those are great books just to grow as an individual so that you have the... I'm sorry. Can you hear the children totally busting left? Mm-hmm. Aaron turned the boys on to Parent Trap because Parent Trap age Lindsay Lohan is quite a pretty little girl, according to Goose Danger and Boo Bear Dawson. So they're in hog heaven upstairs watching Parent Trap, which is just adorable. Okay. We've got like 15 minutes left. So I want to go to the tethered oral tissues and rattle off not all... But a couple of their articles. The big one that stands out is Messener, Rosenfield, Schwartz, Ishman, Baldarcy, Britsky, Darrow, Goldstein, Levi, Meyer, Parik, Apologies, Simmons, Wall, Lambie, Satterfield. You could have done the
2: name at all.
0: I, I'm terrible I at this. Wish. Clinical consensus statement, Angoglossia in children from the Otolaryngology Head and Neck and Neck Surgery, official journal of the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery that came out. And it's a PubMed article that you guys can like super easy read. And it came out in May of 2020. The conclusion, this expert panel reached consensus, and I'm reading it straight from here, on several statements that clarify the diagnosis, management, and treatment of ankle glossia in children 0 to 18 years of age. Lack of consensus on other statements likely reflects knowledge gaps and lack of evidence regarding the diagnosis, management, and treatment of ankle glossia. Expert panel consensus may provide helpful information for otolaryngologists treating this. Long story short, it's a lovely way of saying that they don't really have a consensus statement by ENTs as to what constitutes a tongue or lip. What, yeah, what or, the definition like, is. Okay. If you, mm-hmm, exactly.
2: I kind of have one, I think.
0: It's a beautiful tongue tie. You should probably keep it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It doesn't look like one at all. But oh, wait, I can't diagnose it in isolation. Booyah. Okay, sorry. I had to go there. We are not allowed to diagnose a tongue tie in isolation. This is a can they functionally use their articulators to manage and manipulate a bolus, right? And unfortunately, if you diagnose a tongue tie off of a picture on social media, if somebody posts it and you respond it, you actually factually open yourself up for ethical implications. The newer data from the American Otolaryngology Association is presenting is that this is way over increased in prevalence from this, whatever this diagnosis is, that's still inconclusive. And they recommend that it actually only be addressed. Erin, help me out. Is it less than 15% of the cases that actually needs to be addressed? And what we're seeing is that there's more negative outcomes in cases, like the negative outcomes are starting to rise, such as if the Wound is not appropriately healed. It can actually cause scar tissue, which can inhibit movement.
2: Well, there's, I can't even tell you how many kids I have come in that say, well, we had our tongue tie released, then we had a revision, then we had another revision. And so it like.
0: Which is creating scar tissue.
2: I would love, and it would be really difficult to measure, but the trauma caused from, and this is another worry that I have. Because it happens a lot with infants, which there is more research. If you're breastfeeding, that's when there is some research to show that a tongue tie can implement mother's pain. But what I worry about, especially when families decide to go the route of a dentist lasering the tongue, is that they have to reopen the wound over and over and over again and do stretches, which is incredibly painful and incredibly traumatic for both the child and the caregiver. And that is such a critical, critical time in building attachment between caregiver and child. And so when you're at a time where you want child to show signs of hunger, go to the breast, breastfeed. It's great. You skin to skin. You have the experience of bonding. And then multiple times a day, you're having to go in and reopen a wound and cause pain to your child while they're screaming, crying, telling you they don't want you to do this. That's very alarming to me. And this is just my opinion. I feel that if I'm ever in a scenario where I want a tongue tie to be assessed, I personally would prefer that a child is seen by someone who understands the airway and who is specializes in that to know how it is impacting their breathing because Those are part of the contraindications of getting it if it's going to worsen the obstruction of the airway in regards to sleep especially. So
0: that was some of the position statements that have come out from the American Otolaryngology Association. If you're going to assess for a tethered tissue, then you have to rule out an aerodigestive tract, including laryngomalasia, trachomalasia, bronchomalacia, and large adenoids, as well as are there any other underlying neurological deficits that have not yet been evaluated that could be contributing to why they're having difficulty with movement? Because y'all, we're getting kids out of the NICUs that could have had a smaller infarct that isn't known because they're- It may never be It found. may never be found, I mean, I have caught grade two residual, grade three residual bleeds that you're like, how did they miss a grade three placement? Simple. It's placement. Where did the infarct incur and how much damage or are you actually picking up on early seizure activity as well? Because these are, or tonal issues, are we looking at like tonal issues or do you have a child that has torticollis that's presenting, but quote unquote as a tongue tie, but in fact they have torticollis because there was a difficulty getting through the birth canal. I mean, those are all contributing factors because if your neck and your sternocleidomastoid mastoid are rotated and get to an OT, get an OT, get a PT. My favorite is the claim that it improves orgasms. If you get it released, it'll improve an orgasm for adults. Oh, yeah, they do say yeah, that. Yeah, I, I saw that on a social media post.
2: Because they say that the tissue goes all the way down. To your tutti ta.
0: And sorry, that's what my family calls it. It's the tutti top. And when I saw that on social media, I was like, I want to read the well-done systematic meta-analysis review on the tethered oral tissue that states that in a grown adult, severing it will improve your –
2: but okay. And also, (laughs) I just struggle because our bodies are pretty wonderful and the way that they – your tongue is one part of – of a whole system. And so maybe your tongue has a little bit less movement, but your jaw may help with the movement of your tongue. Or there's so many things. And I was really excited because I think another big hush at Asha this year was the focus on neurodiversity affirming care. There was a really, really great lecture by two autistic SLPs. One works for Toby Dine Fox, and I forget where the other one worked for. And it was fantastic. And they talked a lot about how to write strengths-based assessments, even using some of the standardized tools that we already have, like how to kind of flip the script on how you're writing about it, especially with pragmatics, because that's a big, that's a big hot topic that we won't like get into today, but that's a big shift that I feel like our field and a lot of fields are making. But to that point, we have to start to shift to with our measurements of what success is Because it's not neurodiversity affirming to put everyone in the same box and to push them to meet the same goals as maybe their neurotypical peers. That's not ever probably going to be the story for them. And I'm having this conversation a lot at work because the biggest issue, especially with speech, I think over OT and PT, but if I'm going to be completely transparent, I think speech is the worst discipline of discharging when they should is access because there's so many children that need support and there's not enough therapies for them. So starting to look at the way that you're measuring success with your families too, I think is really important because you could have this kid in therapy forever. You know, I could have my teenager autistic patient in therapy forever working on their rotary mastication to make them eat more politely. But are they ever going to do it when I'm not looking at them and I'm not giving them all the cues? No, they're not. They're not. They're not. It's just not going to happen. And I'm going to be honest. Sometimes it's not like an experiment, but when I'm eating by myself at home, I do things I would never do in public. Like I will like put my finger in the bowl and lick my finger and like get all the sauce out. Like I wouldn't do that in public. <laughs> you know, some of the autistic kids I work with, they don't care. They're going to do it anyways because they don't really care what you think. And so I think about that sometimes and I'm like, yeah, I do eat so different. <laughs> and so that's another part I think of like all the topics that we're talking about today is like. Being able to take a step back and shift on what success looks like. And a lot of that is what does success look like for the family and what does success look like for the child?
0: And you have to have the conversation with the caregivers to seek out the difference and do they understand and where are they in their walk with respect to understanding and embracing their child's neurodiversity and their outcomes. So one goose will straight up lick the inside container of the Chick-fil-A sauce, regardless of where we are. And I'm like, baby, this is one of those social rules where we can't do that in public. He's like, but it's good. And I'm like, I concur. However, we do have to adhere to this social rule because we talk about the rules and which ones we can adhere to and which ones we can challenge. But like, oh, my goose danger. Okay. Okay. We have one final thing to cover. The course that we went to was by none other than our dear friend, Kristen West, who we just love and adore. And it was Food for Thought is a Reduced Diet Variety Educationally Relevant. Now, Kristen, because she's Kristen, has a three-page reference sheet. I love her to pieces. So please email Kristen if you want to check out her references. Or
2: if you're going to Skisha. Yes. She'll be at Skisha.
0: Yep, yep, yep. She's coming to Skisha and is she presenting at Pisha this year? Maybe. I
2: didn't see it. Yeah, I can't.
0: I'm not going to Pisha this year. I wish I was. I wish we could come see you present with um up there. But yes, but she's the I think the keynote speaker for the awards luncheon here for Skisha. God, she's phenomenal. Okay, so here's the big takeaway. Is it relevant? to treat a child that has reduced variety and intake of foods within the public schools under IDEA Part B. Bottom line? Yes. And then Kristen went through multiple rationale as to why. One, if a child has a reduced intake and they're only eating, say, 5 to 10 foods, then they are not hitting most likely their caloric metabolic need in the course of a day so that they are primed for success to actually be able to learn and access the curriculum the same as their peers, right? That's huge, 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 huge. And again, that's why we go back to interprofessional education on what the different medical health practitioners are that we collaborate with, especially with the registered dietitian. And then one of the other things that she talked about that was, she gave references on, just completely went out of my head and how she phrased it. The social piece, we teach social skills, right? Like we work on social skills and executive functioning and if you have a child that's having trouble sequencing the steps and how to prep and prepare a meal or the steps and how to feed themselves, or we were just joking about goose danger, licking in his Chick-fil-A sauce, those social skills surrounding mealtime. These are all important things that as professionals, we can empower these students to do. Right.
2: Well, and her point was that like you can, you know, a lot of speech therapists in the school will say, I don't have time for that. And her point is you can incorporate it very easily within what you're already doing, which is why we should also understand different capacities and how they are involved in different areas, which is fresh in my brain because it's what I'm lecturing on from the next three conferences I'm going to. But like we – and I won't go on a soapbox about it. If you want to hear the soapbox, it'll come to my lecture. But Friday, February 3rd. do a great job as SLPs of doing a task analysis of what we're actually asking a child to do. Instead, we focus on very specific skills that don't necessarily carry over, especially with our neurodiverse population. And so I think from feeding, from language, from all the things, we have to do a better job of breaking down what am I actually asking them to do? What are the underlying skills? of this very vast task. Because if, if sitting in the chair is hard, if not having any sort of sensory input is difficult, if this specific food is really hard, and then you're asking them to chew it and masticate a food that's harder to masticate, you're already putting yourself in the negatives. Like you're already making it harder for yourself. So how can you understand all the specific processes and aspects of a task, to know where the child is, it's going to make it so much easier for you to actually build more trust and success within the overall goal if you understand those things. And that's where like, okay, you know, we can, in the school, like you said, we're working on sequencing or we're working on socialization. Okay. Maybe I, instead of doing a working on pragmatics in the classroom that once a week I go into the lunchroom and we're doing, we're working on, you know, engaging with a new food or, you know, one of my favorite lectures at ASHA, the last ASHA we went to was the messy play one from the Rebecca school, the floor time school in New York city, where they do social groups with food, which i also understand there's more liability with food and allergies and you have to be kept, but like, you should know all of that in a school because you should know what their allergies are and you should be able to navigate that part too. So that was a big takeaway from her.
0: What if you have a child that has an AAC device? How do they, and she, AAC. okay. So if you have a child that has an AAC device and how are they communicating what they want or what they don't want to eat on their AAC device, because that's, high stakes. yes, that's an opportunity right there. Or if you're working, you were talking about sequencing. If you're working on first, second, third, the steps of a meal prep, Right especially for our children that are in the transition stage, like going to like, are we going like for life skills here? Like how do we prep and prepare? And that to me is something very dear and important because that's my uncle Matthew. That's my brother-in-law, right? Like he still has open mouth bite with a vertical chew pattern with anterior holding of his bolus, but He does abysmal during anesthesia. He's not a viable candidate to have his adenoids or his tonsils removed because, I mean, he had surgery for glaucoma while we were at ASHA and bless him, he had a seizure after the surgery. Like he doesn't do well with anesthesia. So like for him to be able to, we understand he's always going to eat like this and that's okay because he is fed, bless his heart. He is well nourished, our uncle Matthew, right? But knowing how to set the table, knowing how to, because he also has a cortical vision impairment, knowing where the pieces go, knowing how to cut his own food such and reach for the equipment. And I know we're overlapping an OT here, but as such, we should. Knowing how to reach for a knife without accidentally cutting his fingers. Those are skills that once a long, 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 long time ago, he had an amazing team actually in Greenville teach him how to do these things and empower my in-laws and how to do these things, which is a biggie. So yes. Okay. So Asha was amazing. I'm always an emotional wreck afterwards. This is the first time I didn't get bronchitis after Asha, but like that's because like I run a hundred miles an hour and then burn myself out, but and then just catch a cutie because my body's like rest. But Asha was amazing because I got to commune with my colleagues. I got to celebrate their wins. I got to hug them and cry over lost loved ones, over new diagnoses of things we hoped and dreamed for that didn't come to fruition, but then celebrate the wins that we did and make new friends in the process. And that's one of my favorite things about Asha every year.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So anything else, darling?
2: I don't think so. We only went over
0: by like forever in a day. So folks, thank you for tuning in
2: to the- and it's snowing, so I'm a little less stressed right now, so that's good. <laughs> well, it is- it, I just hope my car can get out from the street.
0: Well, it is Lunar New Year, folks. So uh, Lunar New Year? It's Chinese New yes, Year. Yes, but it's- Is that it's lunar, lunar New Year? It's Lunar New Year. Yes. So it's uh, Lunar New Year, and a very dear friend, Dr. Grace, messaged me on Saturday, and I just thought it was beautiful. She said, and a quote, happy new lunar year. The water rabbit symbolizes a fresh start, prosperity, and health. And I thought that was just, that's beautiful because it's the start of a fresh year. So our boys go to a Mandarin immersion school. So we celebrate today. So we're going to go celebrate today and craft and binge watch movies and play trash because Riley taught us how to play trash, which is apparently a very popular card game in Minnesota. So Minnesota, did I say it?
2: Garbage. Is there another name for
0: it? She told us it was trash. I don't know. But it's a great game. So if you're listening and you two celebrate, Happy Lunar New Year. And stay tuned because Erin and I have been recording out the wazoo and we're currently recorded through April with 12 more recordings to go by the end of January. (laughs) So... All right, everybody, don't forget to find us on First Bite Podcast on Instagram. We love it when you leave kind words and a five-star review on Apple Podcast. And you know where to find us. Message us if you need us. Bye. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep, Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha, and for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 Convention my financial disclosures. All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech-Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour ceu for the book from speechtherapypd.com so yeah i stay pretty busy but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures if you ever have any questions please feel free to reach out all right thanks y'all bye